Church family, if you would, open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. The title of our message today is God's Sovereignty Over the Nations, One Family Tree. The next few weeks, we're going to talk about God's sovereignty over the nations from a few different perspectives. Today, looking at it from the perspective of one family tree, Genesis chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 32, all of chapter 10. And so when you find that, um, you follow along in your copy of God's word as I read Genesis chapter 10. This is the word of God. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. The, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Nephtahim, Pathrusim, Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Elisha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, the children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpekshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpekshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelah, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Diklah, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, and their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies. In their nations, and from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, would you help us pay attention to your word, understand your word, and apply your word to our lives for the honor and glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. How many of you ever made a family tree? 
Anybody ever done that? Maybe in school, you had a school project. Maybe even more recently, you've um, used even perhaps some modern technology to try to trace some of your family uh, family tree. How far, how far back have you been able to trace it? Three generations, four generations? Anybody know it back five, six generations? Anybody know? Seven? You got five? Okay. All right. Cool. Anybody else further than that? Six, seven, eight, nine? It's probably not many of us. Normally, most of us, maybe two or three, four generations at the most, and then we don't really know after that. How many of you, good news for you today, realize that I'm a part of your family tree? I mean, you just needed to know that today, right? Your day is so much better now that you know that I'm a part of your family tree. I'm just joking about the part that you're glad to know that. But it is true. How many of you realize that Abraham Lincoln is a part of your family tree? Napoleon Bonaparte, a part of your family tree. The Apostle Paul, a part of your family tree. King Nebuchadnezzar, a part of your family tree. Pharaoh. You say, which Pharaoh? Well, I primarily, when I think of Pharaoh, I think of the one that lived around the time of a guy named Moses, and they kind of duked it out about, you know, letting God's people go. Um, but really, we could say any Pharaoh that's ever lived. Part of your family tree. Speaking of Moses, what about Moses? He's part of your family tree. What about Noah? We spent a lot of time recently talking about Noah. Yep, part of your family tree. What's the point? Well, the point is that, very simply put, we're all related. Every one of us. And by all, I don't just mean all of us in this room, or all Americans, or all English-speaking people. I mean every person in the world. Every human being. And not only are we all related, we all exist under the sovereign control of the God who created us. The God who created all the peoples of the world. Genesis chapter 10 might be one of those chapters that you're tempted to skip over in your yearly Bible reading plan. Just be honest, right? We kind of get to it, we scan through, we go, "Mm, bunch of names going on to chapter 11. But it is worth reading, and it is worth pondering. I'm not going to say it's easy to read, and I'm not saying you should quote me on any of my pronunciations of any of those names, okay? Um, but I did my best. In fact, I was practicing and um, this morning, and as I was going through these names, um, I figured I should practice a little bit. Uh, Letty and Sadie, my two oldest daughters, were listening, and I was about halfway to three quarters, well, maybe halfway through, and I was doing, I mean, in my humble opinion, pretty pretty good at pronouncing these names, and I, I hadn't stumbled at all, at least. Even if I had mispronounced them, I hadn't stumbled, and, um, and, and then I just... just Barely stumbled on one, and I hear, <laughs> and it was Letty, right? Uh, sorry, I had to call you out. I was like, Could you give me, show a little grace, right? A little grace. This is hard. But it is God's word, and it teaches us something of vital importance, and, and that is this. Church family, all nations belong to one race of people who exist under God's sovereign control. All nations belong to one race of people who exist under God's sovereign control. It's perhaps one of the most foundational truths we can learn about the world in which we live. 
Obviously, the most foundational truth is that we are not here by accident, that there is a God and he has created us. He is the creator of all. Another foundational truth is that God has created humans in his image. And we could follow that by another foundational truth that we have rebelled against him, against our creator. But right on the heels of those most foundational truths, which we've seen in the first opening chapters of Genesis, is Genesis chapter 10. And the truth that all nations belong to one race of people who exist under God's sovereign control. Just consider for a moment how much of our lives are impacted by relationships with one another, relationships with different types of people, and relationships between various nations. Just consider for a moment how much of life is impacted by racial racial tension and conflict between nations. Does the Bible speak to these real life issues? You, You better believe that it does. And one of those places is Genesis chapter 10. And this passage that's really tempting to skip over. God's word in Genesis chapter 10, I believe, serves to zoom us out from the middle of the chaos of the world in which we live, and it provides us with a bigger perspective. Whose perspective? I believe it's providing us with God's perspective on the different peoples and the nations of the world. Now, I want to examine the structure of Genesis chapter 10, make some observations, and then I want to share with you three truths that I think we can take away from this passage and apply to our lives. Now, I'm going to tell you, almost the first half of the sermon today is going to be spent just observing things that are there before we get to the truth. So it's maybe a little different than the normal flow of, of, of when I preach. But uh, we're just going to spend some time looking at just what we see here in this passage. And then we'll, um, in the second half, we'll look at some things we can take away from this passage. To begin with, Genesis 10, and maybe you know this, maybe you've heard this, um, maybe it's written in your Bible somewhere. Uh, Genesis 10 is often called the Table of Nations. It's referred to as the table of nations. It's basically a summary of the nations which descended from Noah after the flood. If you'll recall, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Maybe you could glance your eyes back there for a moment. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So part of God's blessing post-flood is that his command to multiply is still there, which was there in the beginning. We talked about that already when we looked at chapter 9. When we get to Genesis chapter 10, we see this multiplication on display. And we also see that these many peoples spread out and fill the earth. Now, but if fast forward just for a moment, we get to chapter 11, which is often what we would skip to. We realize that although the people chose to multiply, chapter 10, they needed, and I'll just put it nicely, Today, they needed a little help in the spreading out part, okay? And God was more than willing to provide them with that little help. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 11. But they, uh, they did their part in multiplying. We'll look at that dispersion part. If you think about chapter 10 as multiplication, you can ch- think about chapter 11 as, or the first part of chapter 11 as the details of dispersion. But for now, we want to look at this multiplying of peoples and nations and languages. Chapter 10, verse 1, begins this new section with this phrase that should be becoming familiar to us, the generations of, the generations of, the generations of. It's a, it's a section marker in the book of Genesis. And so we begin this new section in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then what follows is the list of 70 nations, 70 different nations. Verses 2 through 5 describe the sons of Japheth. 
Verses 6 through 20 describe the sons of Ham. And verse 21 through 31 describe the sons of Shem. Now, much research has been done in examining these different peoples and the nations coming from these peoples and how they connect to the nations in more modern ages. And while we don't know everything and sometimes have a little bit of trouble just because we're so far removed from from this period of time in history, um, sometimes we have a little trouble connecting all of the dots. Uh, the truth of the matter is that this is a very detailed and very true to what we know account of the origin of many peoples and nations in our world. People that are much smarter than me and, and have, have the time and the knowledge can have traced these different people groups uh, to other people groups that came from them and to positions, um, uh, locations in our world. Now, remember who the original audience uh, was. And I think this is important, not just of this passage, but any time we study the Bible. We want to remember who this passage was, this text was originally written for. It was originally written for the people of Israel. It was written by Moses for the people of Israel. Which means, as we look at this, it shouldn't surprise us to see that the emphasis is placed on the information which would have been most relevant to the people of Israel. It's written ultimately by God through Moses to the people of Israel. For instance, I want you to notice how short the list of Japheth's sons are compared to the list of the sons of Ham and the sons of Shem. Why would that be? Well, it's because the peoples and nations descended from Japheth had far less interaction and impact upon the nation of Israel. Descendants of Japheth ended up, if you, if you, if you like geography, you know maps, just picture the nation of Israel there on the coast of the Mediterranean. The nations and descendants of Japheth ended up north and west of the land of Israel, spreading out to what became known as Asia Minor and even towards modern-day Spain. The descendants of Ham and the descendants of Shem, however, had much to do with the nation of Israel. To put it very, very simply, stating it very generally, Israel's enemies traced their lineage back to Ham, and Israel traced her lineage back to Shem. Did you catch that? Ham, descendants... Enemies of Israel, Shem's descendants, at least one line of his descendants, became Israel. Thus, Genesis 10 contains much more information regarding the lines of Ham and the lines of Shem because it's written to Israel. That mattered more for them. Remember, it was the descendants of Ham, specifically Ham's son Canaan, who was cursed by Noah at the end of chapter 9. Remember that? And many years later, it was the line of Canaan who was cursed by Noah. Many years later, it was, the, it was the line of Canaan who was pushed out of their land so that the descendants of Shem, people of God, people of Israel, could live there as God had promised to them. And so we see this underlying theme in this passage of God's sovereignty behind this multiplying and dispersing of the nations. <laughs> I may not be able to pronounce all of these names very accurately. We may not know maybe as much as we would like to know about these peoples, but you know who knows everything about them? God. He had a plan for them. Let's look more closely at some of these nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And these seem to be given in geographical order from where they dispersed to from south to north. 
Cush is often associated with the region of Ethiopia, which is south of Egypt in Africa. Egypt is often associated with Egypt. Uh, that was an easy one today, okay? I had to give those hard names, how to do an easy one. Egypt is associated with Egypt, so that's pretty easy. So Ethiopia, uh, people of Cush go up, you got Egypt, and then the list doesn't really give any more information about put. And then Canaan's descendants, you go a little north of there, are associated with the land north of Egypt and east of the Mediterranean, which is where most of the events in the Bible take place. And this mapping of the nations is not... It's not hard and fast. There are deviations in it. For instance, we got a decent amount of information here about this guy named Nimrod. Nimrod. Verse 8 tells us that one of the descendants of Cush was a man named Nimrod. He's called a mighty man and a mighty hunter and a builder of cities. But before we say, hey, I want to be like Nimrod, we need to notice which cities he built. These cities, which include the familiar cities of Babel and Nineveh, were in the land of Shinar. We'll study this land of Babel next week, Lord willing, and you know much about the the city of Nineveh in the land of Shinar. Those are not located in Ethiopia or Arabia, but actually northeast of Israel around modern-day Iraq. This is the area known as Mesopotamia, which many of us learned that in school, maybe in social studies or something like that. And then when you get to the descendants of Canaan in verse 15 through 19, we have listings of people groups which will be somewhat familiar since these are peoples that Israel drives out of the promised land in the book of Joshua. You probably recognize some of those names. Verses 15 through 19. And then when we get to the lineage of Shem in verses 21 through 31, two interesting things happen. First, instead of just jumping right into his descendants, you'll notice in verse 21, the text pauses to tell us that Shem was the father of all the children of Eber. Well, who is this Eber, and why did it pause to tell us that? Eber was Shem's great-grandson. Why does God want to highlight this, that Eber was a descendant of Shem? Well, it's because Eber is going to have two sons, one of which will be the chosen line of God leading to Abraham and the people of Israel. It's also possible that the name given to the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrews, you know that word, it's possible that that came from the name Eber. In the, in the Hebrew, Hebrews sounds a whole lot like the name Eber. So it's possible that that's where the name Hebrew uh, or the Hebrews comes from. The second interesting thing is that when we get to the sons of Eber in verse 25, so if you look there, the list mentions both of the sons, Joktan and Peleg, but it only follows the line of Peleg. Excuse me, Joktan. We don't hear any more about uh, Peleg in chapter 10. But we do halfway through chapter 11. So the structure is we get to Shem, which is the line that ultimately leads to Abraham, hint ultimately to Jesus. And, and it follows the line of Joktan in chapter 10. Then it pauses, gives us the story of the Tower of Babel, which we'll get to when we get to chapter 11. And then if you'll go to the end of the story of Babel, you go to Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, picks back up with another genealogy, and there it traces the descendants of Shem through the line of Peleg. And that's then what gets us to Abraham, which then, on down the road, gets us to Jesus. I really just want, want to kind of go through that to help you see that there is a rhyme and a reason to this. There is a structure that's here. It's not completely random. One more thing about chapter 10 as a whole. I mentioned earlier that there are 70 nations 
or peoples listed. If you count out the descendants of each of Noah's sons, and if you leave out Nimrod just as an individual, okay, leave him out, not as, not as a nation, you get 70. 70 nations. Now, this table of nations is written with both historical accuracy and in such a way to point to a totality. The number seven is often symbolic of, in Scripture of completion, of covering everyone or everything. And so it's not by accident that God gives us 70 nations here in this table of nations. It's meant to convey the point that God is referring here to all the nations. When we read this, we should think all the nations of the world, whether specifically mentioned in this list or not, find their ancestral roots in the family, in the line, in the genealogy of Noah. In other words, I'm in your family tree. We're all related. In other words, we're all related. There is one family tree and God is the sovereign planter and pruner, if we could say it that way, of this family tree called mankind or humanity. Okay. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to stop, take a deep breath, shake your head a little bit. I know I'm kind of feeding you like drinking through a fire hose. That's a lot of information. But then we want to ask this question. Are there practical theological truths for us to learn and apply to our lives from this list of names, from this list of 70 nations? I mean, all that may be kind of interesting to us, but what does that have to do with me and my life today? Well, it has more to do than making sure you include me in your family tree. Let me share with you three truths. I think there are more, but let me share with you three truths that I think we can take away from Genesis chapter 10. The first is this. We can trust God even when the nations rage. We can trust God even when the nations rage. Now, this truth may seem like a bit of a stretch. Not that it's not a true statement, but like, where in the world are you getting that from Genesis chapter 10? Are you just kind of pulling that out of somewhere else in the Bible and sticking it in Genesis chapter 10? No, hear me out for just a moment. As I've studied this passage, I've tried to think about it from the perspective of the original audience. Remember the nation of Israel. Like, what did the nation of Israel hear when they heard this table of nations read to them? How did this passage of Holy Scripture, of God's Word, help them as a people, as God's people? And I think as they heard all of these nations, which would have been very familiar to them, they might not be super familiar to us, but would have been very familiar. I mean, this was a description of the world in which they live. I think they would have, or at least should have, walked away with a deeper trust in the sovereignty of God. God knows all these nations of peoples. God knows where they came from. God knows where they're at in that day and time. God was there when they were made. God was the one who made them. And God is not beneath them. God is reigning over them. Many years later, the Apostle Paul said this to the citizens of Athens. 
I can't help but think perhaps he had Genesis 10 on his mind uh, when he said this. He was in the city of Athens. He was talking to them. They did not believe in the God of the Bible. They worshipped all of these other uh, other false gods. And he said this to them. He said, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. He said, and he, speaking of God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Friends, God is sovereign over all the nations of the world. They are at his beck and call. He makes them rise and fall. He sets their boundaries. If all the nations of the earth were constantly at peace, then perhaps this point wouldn't stand out to me as much. But when I look at the world in which we live, I look at the world through history and then up until the day in which we live, see that the world has never been, not since Adam and Eve sinned, has never been and never will be this side of eternity at perfect peace. As long as Satan roams the earth and as long as sin binds the hearts of humanity, the nations will not live at peace with one another. So when I look at all these nations and peoples listed in Genesis 10, I see generations behind the names, behind the, 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 the names of people and names of nations. Uh, I, I see generations and generations of war and displacement and refugees and unrest and turmoil. And that turmoil between nations can lead us to feelings of worry and feelings of anxiety and feelings of fear. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Why? Because we don't just have a table of nations here. We have the God who is ruling and reigning over all of these nations of the world. We don't have to live in worry and anxiety and fear because we know the God who is over it all. Not only do we know Him, like things about Him, but through His Son Jesus, we can know Him intimately. We can have a relationship with Him that leads us to peace and rest, even in the midst of the turmoil of the nations around us. Why don't you just for a moment, just, just pause and just listen to and be encouraged by the words of Psalm chapter 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Church, the branches of the one family tree of humanity may try to destroy one another. 
But we, those who know God and belong to God, we can live with a peace that surpasses all understanding as we trust in the God who is sovereign over it all. That's the first truth I want to share with you. The second truth is this. We must love people regardless of looks, languages, and location. We must love people regardless of looks, language, or location. We're told several times in this passage that many nations, which means many languages, which means many locations, since the nations spread abroad on the earth, are in existence. And we also know, both from Scripture and from personal experience, that many nations also means a variety of physical characteristics, a variety of looks among the peoples of the world. In other words, these nations of the world look different, speak different, and live in different locations from one another. Well, that shouldn't be that big of a deal. Except that it is because we have sin in our hearts. Because human hearts have inherited the sin nature of our earthly father, Adam. We use these differences among us as reasons for hateful discrimination rather than worshipful celebration in the great glory of the God who made the nations. Instead of worshiping God for being sovereign over such a wide variety of people whom He has made, instead of celebrating the creativity of our God who has made the nations, we look down on people who are different than us. We call them names. We turn them into hurtful stereotypes. We withhold justice. We take their land. We exclude them. We deny them basic human rights. We murder them. Think about it. The raging of the nations, the turmoil that is often seen between different nations and within nations is very often a result of hatred based on the differences between the looks, the languages, and the locations of people. It's east versus west. It's north versus south. It's black versus white. It's brown versus black. It's white versus brown. It's Yankee accent versus southern drawl. It's English versus Spanish. It's country versus country. It's tribe versus tribe. Neighbor versus neighbor. And behind every racial slur or act of favoritism or aggression, Genesis 10, I believe, is screaming, He's your brother. She's your sister. You might differ when it comes to your looks, language, or location, but you're all a part of the same family tree. Church, if Genesis 10 is telling us anything, it's telling us that we all belong to one race. We belong to the human race. In fact, I don't think it's very healthy for us to even speak about different races of people. Yes, there are different people groups. Yes, there are different ethnicities, but we really all belong to the same race. It's the human race. This doesn't mean that we ignore the differences between various groups of people, as if they're not there. But it does mean we don't treat anyone regardless of looks, language, or location, as less than what they are. A fellow human being, a part of our human family, made in the image of Almighty God. Do you realize that genetically speaking, let's think think about genetics for a minute. You know, genetics is a study of our DNA and that kind of stuff. Um, You know, genetically speaking, there's hardly any genetic difference between any two humans in the world. Like, minuscule difference genetically between you and any other person 
on this planet. Scientists have done the research and found that you can take any two humans in the world. You can pick the two that, that look the most different than one another and speak the most different from one another and live as far from one another as you can live on planet Earth. And when you compare their genetic information, all that information that's there in our DNA, there will only be about 0.05% difference. 0.05, that's 5 out of 10,000, if I did my math right. And only, of that difference, only 0.012% of the dis- difference is what results in the way we look different from one another. And what would divide us as different races of people. 0.012%. Did you catch that? Genetically speaking... You are 99.99% the same, DNA-wise, what's in your DNA, as every other person in the world. (laughs) You don't even need the Bible to see the foolishness of racism. Just really good science that looks at our DNA. It says, actually, we're pretty much all exactly the same when you look inside of us. But we have the Bible. And the Bible speaks even louder than genetics does. God's Word condemns any form of prejudice and partiality based on looks, language, or location, and it roots its call to love one another in much greater terms than any DNA testing does. God's Word says that all people are made in the image of God, and we all descended from Adam and then from Noah. So from the perspective of being made in the image of God, you are 100% the same as every other person on planet Earth. And even come from the same family tree. Remember Acts 17, 26? And He, God, made from one man, every nation of mankind, that's the human race, to live on all the face of the earth. But that only has an impact on your thinking and on your living if you believe Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, Genesis chapter 10, which is where we are today. The one family tree The equality in the midst of diversity, which we see in God's Word, only helps eradicate racism if we actually believe God's Word. Unfortunately, we live among multiple generations of people who have been sold the lie of what's called Darwinian evolution. That is, this theory that we came from just natural processes without any creator who designed and created the world. It's a complete rejection of what we learn in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. This lie of Darwinian evolution, which denies the truth that God created mankind in His image. It denies that the variety of people we see today are a result of genetic mutations through the years which do not change our humanness. We're still created in the image of God. This Darwinian evolution, which instead holds that the differences we see among the races, as they would call them, are a result of people at different stages in the evolutionary process. And thus, according to that mindset and that belief, we are free to treat certain races of people as inferior because, according to Darwinian evolution, that's exactly what they are because they're in a different stage along this evolutionary process. So I can say I'm in a more advanced stage than you are because you look different than me. That's what Darwinian evolution says. You say, what in the world are you talking about? You just kind of went off on a tangent there. Talking about the fact that while racism 
is not the result of the theory of evolution being taught as the origin of the universe because racism is rooted in our sinful hearts. We don't need the theory of evolution to discriminate upon one another hatefully. And it existed long before Charles Darwin ever lived, hate among different people groups. However, Darwinian evolution has been the catalyst for much of the racism that we've seen over the past 150 years. I don't have time to go into detail, nor am I an expert in this field of study, but I can say with confidence that much of the racism we know of today, such as that which has taken place in our country and other countries, the enslavement of certain groups of people like Africans, the animal-like treatment of aboriginal peoples, to the atrocities of something like the Holocaust, those things have roots tied directly to the belief that we are all here as a result of an evolutionary process with no creator at the beginning who made us in his image. Just do a little research, as I've done recently, and you will find many extremely racist statements and actions from history justified by belief in the theory of evolution. So this is how we are justified in doing this because we are at a more advanced stage in the evolutionary process than those people who look like that. And unfortunately, that is what is taught. In schools all over our country and all over our world. Just do a little research and you'll find those scriptures. I'll be glad even to point you in the right direction, um, and recommend maybe some to you. Deny Scripture. Deny God creating mankind in His image. Deny God sovereignly making and ruling over the nations. And you have all you need to justify hateful, destructive behavior towards people who look different than you, speak different than you, and live at a different location than you. What's even sadder? You say, how could it get any sadder than that? Well, what's even sadder than people who deny God acting hatefully towards people? It's people who claim to believe in the God of the Bible speaking and acting hatefully toward others based on their looks, language, and location. See, it's one thing for somebody who says, I don't even believe in God, to hate other people because of their looks, language, and location. What what an atrocity in the sight of God for people who say they believe in God. To act the very same way. Church, Genesis 10 may only look like a long list of names and nations, but I think it calls us to repent of any form of prejudice towards another person or another group of people. And guys, I can't, I can't look in your heart and mind, but if I could step out on a limb for just a moment, and say that there's not one of us who is completely 100% innocent in this area of our lives. And I just know that because we're sinners. I know that because we inherited a sin nature from our father Adam. And we'll find any excuse to look down on another person. We're all family, physically speaking, but we're not all family, spiritually speaking. And that leads to the third and final truth that I want to share with you. And that's this. Church family, we must join God 
in his plan for all nations. We must join God in his plan for all nations. We're going to trust God as the nations rage and he's sovereign over it all. We're going to love all the peoples of the world regardless of looks, language, and location. And we need to join God in his plan for the nations that he has made. We'll be looking at this truth more when we get to chapter 12, but I just want to touch on it for a moment. Genesis 10 is not the only place in Scripture where we see God directing our attention to the nations. In fact, if we interpret Genesis 10 in light of the grand storyline of Scripture, this table of nations becomes a helpful road marker on the salvation highway, if we could call it that. It provides a crucial foreshadowing in the unfolding of God's plan of rescue. God had promised in Genesis 3 to send a man born of woman who would destroy the serpent. That means God had promised rest and relief from the enemy who helped usher sin and fallenness into God's world. In other words, salvation from Genesis chapter 3 was on the way. In the coming chapters of Genesis, we're going to get to answer this question. And I love answering this question as we study God's word. Where is the salvation coming from? Where do we look in all the peoples of the world? Where do we look? We're going to get to answer that question in the coming weeks. But Genesis 10 provides a really good hint at the answer to another question. Who is this salvation coming for? Who is this salvation promised in Genesis 3 coming for? The answer is it's coming for all the nations. Not just one nation, not just one group of people, not just one language. Salvation is coming for all the nations. In fact, the first time we clearly see God's heart for the nations is in Genesis chapter 12. Where God promises to give Abraham, note these words, a land. He promises to give him a great nation, make him into a great nation, and to bless all the families of the earth. Genesis chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 3, you'll see that. That's the first clear place that we see God's plan of salvation is going to include all the nations. But I think Genesis 10 is getting us ready for that. In fact, we see this chapter, Genesis 10, preparing us for that awesome promise to Abraham in chapter 12 by saying all three of those words multiple times in Genesis chapter 10. We see the word land, we see the word nations, and we see the word families or clans, depending on your translation. So Genesis 10 is preparing us for the promise of Genesis 12 that God's going to bless all the nations of the earth through this coming Messiah. But you know, when I read chapter 10, I can't just think ahead a couple chapters to Genesis chapter 12. When I read Genesis chapter 10, when I read and try my very best to read through all of those names in Genesis chapter 10, those 70 nations, my mind races through the pages of Scripture all the way to the book of Revelation. All the way to Revelation chapter 7 where we read this, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is God's plan for the nations. And we get to be a part of it. Genesis chapter 10, we learn about the origin of the clans, languages, and nations. It's God's blessing of multiplication. And then we fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 7, and we learn about the destination of people from every nation, tribe, peoples, and languages. God's blessing, not just of multiplication, but of eternal salvation. Friend, God is sovereign over the nations. He has a plan for the nations, but 
Although every nation, tribe, people, and language will be represented there in heaven, not every person will be there. That's why I said that even though we're all part of the same physical family, not all part of the same spiritual family. Salvation has come for all the nations, and it has come in the person of Jesus. And to all who receive, to all who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. Every person who believes in Jesus for salvation, God adopts that person into His family, but only those who believe. We're all children of Adam. We're all children of Noah. But we are not all God's children. Only those who repent of their sin and believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for their sin, who believe that Jesus rose up from the grave and gives a free gift of salvation to all who believe in Him, only those are a part of the spiritual family of God. So God's family will be made up of people from all looks, languages, and locations. Only one thing that will distinguish them from the rest of the world is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that leaves us with two basic points of application. Number one is this. If you have never believed in Jesus for salvation, then you need to. And you need to know that when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross, not just for one group of people, but for all the peoples of the world. So it doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter where you live. You can trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and God will save you. It's the good news of the gospel. The second point of application is this. If you have believed in Jesus for salvation, if you are a part of God's spiritual family, then you must give your life to sharing the good news of Jesus with all nations and peoples and languages and tribes of this earth. Because they need to know that Jesus came for them. That Jesus died for all the nations. Because He died for all the nations, we must go to all the nations. But we'll only go to them if we love them, regardless of their looks, their languages, and location. God forbid that we withhold the gospel and Christian fellowship from anyone based on their looks, their language, or their location. God forbid that our church consists of people who only look just like us, when our community is made up of people who both look like us and who look different than us. And God forbid that our church should ever act like we favor one people, one nationality, one skin color, one language over any other. We are to be a people of the nations because we serve the God who is sovereign over the nations. So trust God. Love all people and join God's plan for the nations. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, burn your truth of your word into our hearts. God, help us not to be able to rest until we have taken heart to heart what you Tell us in your word. God, help us to examine our lives against the mirror of your word. God, see if there be any grievous, sinful way in us. God, would we repent of any failure to trust you where we're just worrying and anxious and fearful of what's going on in the world, we're not trusting You. Help us to repent of that. God, if there be any 
any form of, of hatred towards another person or another group of people because of their look, language, or location. God, I pray that you would convict us of that. Bring us to our knees in repentance. May we mourn over our sin. May we cry out to you to for, for forgiveness. And God, if there be any apathy on our part towards the nations of this world hearing the good news of Christ, God, any laziness, any outright refusal to participate in your mission, God, if there be self-centeredness in us, where we just look at what makes us happy and makes us comfortable, rather than looking at the nations of the world, many of whom have never heard the name of Jesus, God, may we repent of that. But help us not to stay just mourning past sin, but help us to get up and help us to go. Help us to give our lives so that the nations which You have made and which You love and which You sent Your Son to die for can know that there's a God who loves them, there's a God who has sacrificed His Son for them, and there's a way for them, regardless of their looks, language, or location, to have an eternal relationship with the God who made them and loved them. There's a way for them to be forgiven of their sin, to be rescued for all of eternity, to have eternal life with You. I don't know what all You want to do in our hearts from this passage of Scripture today, but God, I just pray that You would do it. So we humble ourselves before You and respond in obedience to Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.